This is uh, Hakuin's Song of Zazen, <coughs> which some of you are familiar with. From the beginning, all beings are Buddha, like water and ice. Without water, no ice. Outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying of thirst. Like the son of a rich man, wandering poor on this earth. We endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. <clears throat> From dark path to dark path, we wandered in darkness. How can be freed from the will of samsara? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana, observing the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living, all come from Zazen. Thus, one true samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings Unending blessings brings mountains of merit. And if we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self. Our own self is no self. It will go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate of the oneness is, of cause and effect, is thrown open. Not to and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, in going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi, how bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly thrown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. I think it's one of the favorite writings in our tradition and uh, you can see how it contains everything we need to practice. It goes back to basics where it all began, where it all begins over and over again and I think that once in a while we need to go back to basics and remind ourselves what the practice is about remind ourselves where the fountain originates. Where does it come from? Remind ourselves to not look outside. 
last couple of talks, of, of Dharma talks, ended with, the, with stressing the vital role of spiritual practice in the face of rising violence and conflict that we experience almost on a daily basis, or read about on a daily basis. And we talked about a practice that is an antidote for hatred and discrimination, and also a way to cultivate seeds of wisdom and kindness for future generations. And theoretically, I think many would agree that the world will be much better off if there was peace among humans. And I think deep down, it is what every person wants. It's just that the way we go about achieving it is, uh, varies a lot. Some people think that there are some people that are standing in the way before we can create peace. We have to eliminate them. But when we eliminate them, we eliminate peace. So we have to examine how we, each of us, practices that. What do we do? So as Zen practitioners, we need to have clarity regarding what is the practice. It's a vehicle for transforming suffering into compassionate action. It sounds good. And it is that. But is it for you, for us? on a personal level. Does it transform? Does it do it? Does it do anything? Yeah, does it do anything? If you practice long enough, you know, you know that it tends to, the practice tends to bring out the best and most refined aspects of what it means to be human. It doesn't mean that Zen is the only vi viable or vital spiritual path. I'm sure there are many other paths that can lead to transformation. Just that personally I happen to be practicing that and so we are talking about it. But it's also important to not, in the process of practice and awakening, put down other possibilities because there may be. Not that it matters greatly to the practice. It's like there are many uh, paths to climb a mountain and once you get on the path, just stick with it and keep going. Although you may, you may once in a while go by another path that seem better, seem like the view is better on the other path, like the flowers smell better over there. But we have to stick with a path. Otherwise, there's no progress, there's no deepening. And people do jump around. You know, spend some time on one path, then jump to another path, then another path, another path, and meanwhile, <clears throat> they always circle the mountain. They never really get anywhere. They never get challenged. So, back to what we call Zen practice. <coughs> what, we, what we refer to as Zen, or Zen practice, consists of many elements, which are all vital to the training process. In fact, Didi Suzuki wrote that it is essential to attend to all aspects of practice 
for what he called Zen personality to emerge. Zen personality. So we engage in liturgy, read sutras, commentaries, work on koans, commit to Ango periods, twice a year, and so on. But the main ingredient that runs through all these aspects is always zazen, meditation. It's in a way, it's, a, it's what ties it all together so we don't get lost in liturgy, in bowing, in koan study, so we don't make koans an intellectualized process. So we don't take any aspect by itself and run with it. Or in a way, <coughs> we always disappear back into Zazen. So whatever it is we do, gets burnt up, gets lost completely, and then gets embodied. Oh, since the, the founder of Aikido said that when we are practicing Aikido, but anything, he said, Learn and forget, learn and forget, let the techniques become part of your being. And it's the same with us in the practice of Zen. We have to learn and let it go. Learn and let it go. Listen and drop it. Practice and drop that too. Be it liturgy, koan study, sitting, must be dropped or it becomes a hindrance for us. So Zazen, so what is it? What is it that we do? What, what is the meaning of it? The word itself, Zen itself means meditation. That's all it means. It was jhana originally, which then in China became channa, then chan, and then Zen in Japanese. But all it means is just meditation, and za means sitting, so it means sitting meditation. That is the heart of it, and that is, this is what we have to come back to and appreciate. Hakuin Song of Zazen is an appreciation. Every word is pointing at not just the beauty of it, but the essential aspect of it in life, realizing who we are, what we are, realizing how we go astray and keep returning home and keep doing that over and over and over again. And every time we do that, it's the first time we sit. Every time you put your butt on a cushion, it's the first time you do that. You have never done that before. This is how it is, but do we experience it this way? Do we fall into a groove, fall, I'm going to sit again, wait for this time to pass, get up and go do what I want to do? I don't know how you practice. You know, we think that basic instructions for Zazen is only for beginners. We have to look at that once in a while and ask, am I practicing correctly? 
Am I observing the thoughts? Am I getting caught up in what comes? Am I directing my attention to my breath? Am I thinking, non-thinking, as Dogen instructed us? If it's new, we do that. If every time you sit is the first time you sit, then every time you sit, you examine, you look, you work on it. If you sit like you sat yesterday, you most likely don't do that. I always find interesting that the many words that have been written about Zen since its emergence, about 1500 years ago, there's very little mention of Zazen instructions. Very little talk about that, even in dialogues. And I think it's partially intended to not restrict the personal experience of their practitioner, and also not to give us too much content to cling on to, into, to hold not to intellectualize. But it doesn't mean that it's not important or crucial to look at basic instructions, to understand how to practice correctly. We do have to do that. So every time I sit, I have an intention. I, I bring up an intention to sit correctly. It's a responsibility I feel I have and it's a responsibility that each one of you have too. Every time you sit down, how do you sit down? Do you prepare yourself to sit? Do you just sit down, meditate, get up, and go and, go and do something else? Now when we practice Aikido, for example, we don't just get on the mat and begin practice. We get on the mat, we line up, Everybody gets quiet. And then the instructor gets on the mat, sits down in front of the students. We close our eyes for a short period of time. We prepare ourselves to practice. We leave everything behind, everything that we brought with us. We intentionally leave it in the changing room. We take off our clothes. We take off everything that is that got absorbed into the clothes throughout the day. We put it on the hook. We put on our training uniform. That's preparation. That's cultivating an intention to practice correctly. Doesn't always work. We still have stuff that adheres to us on the level of skin, even if the clothes are taken off. So we have to work with that, on the mat, on the cushion. But still, there is an intention to let go. There is intention to open up to what the practice can do to us, or what we can do with the practice. There is an intention. And this is how we need to approach meditation. I'm here 
to practice. I'm here to open up. I'm here to not know. Or to not focus on what I know. And by not focusing on what I know, I can be open to what I don't know. Which means I don't know who I am. And even if it's just for the period of sitting, that's fine. You know, I think small steps are good. Small increments. Just for now, just for this period, I will put aside everything I know about myself and I will be curious about what comes, about who I am. Determination is key. Preparation is key. And, and we take for granted, I mean, we, us here, <coughs> maybe, you know, uh, commonly in sitting groups, we take for granted, especially those who've been around for a while, you know, we know what to do. You know, we, we, we get into the zendo, we, we chant, verse of the robe, return to oneness, put on the rakusu, listen to the three gongs, and sit. And we all take for granted that we know what to do, we know what we're doing. Very dangerous to take for granted. First time. Full determination. Let's see what happens. I've never been here before. Never done this before. I wanted to bring up in relation to that uh, what the Buddha described as four stages of meditation, of jhana. He described his own deepening. And a lot happens in meditation. But the first thing he said, he said, I roused, I roused, sorry, I roused unflinching determination. I roused unflinching determination. He began with that. I roused, I brought up unflinching determination. I prepared myself to the unknown. I prepared myself to deal with what I don't know. To have the courage, to muster up the courage to face what comes, and not knowing what will come. So I roused unflinching determination, focused my attention, made my body calm and motionless, made my body calm and motionless, again intention, and my mind concentrated and one-pointed. I made my mind concentrated and one-pointed. Then he said, standing apart from all selfish urges and all states of, all states of mind harmful to spiritual progress, all states of mind that are harmful for creating opening, for, for deepening progress. I entered the first meditative state where the mind, though not quite free from divided and, dif and diffused thought, experiences lasting joy. Right? Not yet calm. So with that mind, with whatever has adhered to us from the day, from the week, from the month, from a lifetime, Whatever it is, 
is still there. Some of it is still there, even with the intention to let it go. And yet, he says, not quite free from divided thought, still I experienced lasting joy. Then he goes on to say, by putting an end to divided and diffused thought, with my mind still in one-pointed absorption, one-pointed absorption, I entered the second meditative state, quite free from any wave of thought, and experienced the lasting joy of the united <coughs> state. That's the second meditative state. As, as that joy became more intense and pure, I entered the third meditative state, becoming conscious in the very depth of the unconscious. Even my body was flooded with joy, of which the noble ones say they live in abiding joy, <coughs> who have still the mind and are fully awake. Fully awake those who, are, who have still the mind. Then, going beyond the duality of pleasure and pain, and the whole field of memory-making forces in the mind. It's very interesting. The field of memory-making forces in the mind. It's something we always experience. And we feed. So I dwelt at last in the fourth meditative state, utterly beyond the reach of thought, in that realm of complete purity, which can be reached only through detachment and contemplation. And then he ended by saying, this was my first successful breaking forth, like a chick breaking out of its shell. Freedom. Freedom, but step-by-step -step description. So, for a practice that doesn't have much about instruction, I think there's a lot there. It's not very long, but there's a lot there for us. As, as a guiding tool, as, as instruction to what to do, but also what not to do. Maybe it's more what not to do, because all that kind of happens if we can work with a desire to go with the thought. When the thought arises, as it comes up, there is a desire in us that the thought very cleverly knows how to match, or we cleverly know how to match what we want. So the thought knows exactly how to reach that. And then we go with it. Like a moth to the fire. We get burned and we do it again. Yeah, it's painful. It hurts. This is creating samsara in action. So, when you hear about this description, I, I don't know what, what you think about it, what you feel when you hear this. Does it help you? Does it make you think that 
you can do that? Or maybe you think, I'm never going to experience that. This is beyond my reach. I'm completely lost in thought. Or is it the light at the end of the tunnel? Maybe, maybe we have a, maybe we have developed a mental picture of what is an ideal meditation period, or what it looks like, and then maybe we try to match it, but that doesn't work. What the Buddha is doing, or what the Buddha is not doing, is not drawing a picture for you to try to match. What he is doing is helping us, guiding us. He's guiding us to see how to practice correctly. And he's telling us that for that to happen, we have to bring up, we have to arouse unflinching determination. Regardless of what happened yesterday, regardless of how your life was up to this moment, regardless of anything, still unflinching determination to practice correctly, to pay attention, to work with the desire to go with thoughts, to work with the desire to go with an emotion that just came up, a memory, maybe an inner physical sense of contraction. All that is happening. Maybe even an urge to cry which does come up. All that. And all this is there in a way to not test us, but to forge our resolve in the practice. So we face, we work with it, we stay utterly focused, and somehow Somehow it subsides, and it does subside. We know it does. However intense it is when it shows up, if we stay with it, if we stay concentrated, focused, alert, if we pay attention to the breath, it subsides. And then something else comes up. That's the process. So it's not about perfect kind of meditation, because it is already perfect if you're practicing it according to that or to these instructions. It's already happening. So we have to drop off any automatic inclination that we we get when we hear about this. Whatever it is that comes up, drop it and follow the instructions. Just that. You know, the saying, even Shakyamuni Buddha is only halfway there, you know that saying, you've heard this before. Right? It means you do not sit for somebody else, you do not practice for anybody else. We do, but we don't. We can't see ourselves as unpracticing to make somebody else happy. I practice because I want my teacher to think that I'm a good practitioner. Some people actually do that. 
some people even come to Zazenkais and Sashins because they want to be good students, quote-unquote. They want to be liked by the teacher. Not only that it doesn't work, it actually creates more of the same. It thickens the, the walls of delusion. We have to practice for ourselves, by ourselves. It may sound selfish, but it's not. We have to do that in the same way that on a plane, you first, if, if the masks, if the oxygen mask drop, you first put it in your own mouth. Then you take care of the child. If you don't breathe, the child doesn't breathe either. If you don't attend to your practice, you cannot share it with anybody. As a teacher, as a practitioner, we all have the same responsibility. Now we sit to realize, we sit to realize that the one who's digging the eyes is already manifesting perfection. This one here, the one who is breathing, is already where he or she wanna be. We sit to recognize it. But there's a lot of distractions, and this is the problem. And this is why it always comes down to the way we deal with distractions. So, so unflinching determination has to do with, although I am very distracted, I still sit. I still sit through the whole period. However long that may be, if I decided to sit for 25, 35, 40 minutes, I'm going to keep my butt on the cushion for the duration of that time. Even if my mind is running 100 miles an hour, even if I feel sad, angry, even if I lose determination, I can still be determined. Even if I lose trust, I can still trust. Because that which lost the trust comes and goes. <coughs> it comes and goes as a thought, as an emotion, as a memory. That will come and go. You sit and you focus. Your whole being, every cell of your body, you focus 100% on just this. So let's look again at these words. He focused his attention, made his body calm and motionless, and his mind concentrated on, and one pointed, one-pointed. So then, you sit down, you examine your body, head to toe, you look for tension. Where am I tight? Is it the shoulder? Is it the neck? Is it the toe? Is it my face? Often the face is tight. 
So we bring awareness to that. And then we, we have the intention to relax it. Every time we encounter tightness, we bring in attention, energy, focus, and relax it. You make your body calm. Responsibility. Who else would do that? Now, if there was a Zazen checklist, this would be the first one. Every time we are about to begin to sit, we need to put everything aside and make a decision. A decision <coughs> to fully take on the practice. To take on the practice for the first time. That's the first one on the checklist for Zazen. You have to choose to want to sit. You have to choose to want to sit. And nobody should ever rob you from that decision. Not a teacher, not a koan, not anything else that you've read. We don't do it because you've read that it's good. We do it because you make a decision to do it. There's no momentum there. You wake up. You wake up before you sit. So you can sit fully awake. What does it mean to put everything aside? Is it to deny? Is it to say, well, it's not happening? Is it to say that the bills are going to be paid if I'm going to sit and focus on my breath? No. None of that. It means to sit with that. It means to not dwell in it at that time. To make a decision to not focus on that for now. Just for now. Just for this period. And then the next period, just for this period. Just for now. And something happens when you do that. But it's not going to happen if you don't do that. It's not going to happen by itself. It has to happen through volition. You know, and especially when we work on cons, you know, before you bring a con into your old thousand, before you do that, you have to be able to reach a stable state of your zazen. Otherwise, you bring a koan to a mess. It's already a mess. And you bring a koan and, oh great, something to focus on. That's not going to work. Because that is guaranteed to be intellectualized. So first we reach that, some depth of samadhi, some level of concentration. And then to that we bring a koan. From that we work on a koan. That's why at the beginning, in the beginning of practice, people don't work on coins. It's pointless. It may do the opposite. It may give you the opposite effect. And then he says, standing apart from all selfish urges and all states of mind harmful to spiritual progress, I enter the first meditative state. And that's exactly what we need to do. We need to enter that state of meditation in the midst of chaos with rejecting nothing. 
rejecting nothing, denying nothing. Whether it's anger, sadness, loss of hope, whatever it is. Thinking I'm never going to get there. Fine. No problem. Bring that thought with you, put it down. Set it aside. Have the intention to not reject. Have the intention to practice as is. And recognize selfish urges. Yeah, we have many of those. And I think it's, well, maybe it's difficult to decipher, you know, what is selfish urge and what is not? Because the self is very clever. And it's hiding in a mass of justifications and excuses. And maybe that's a topic for another teacher. You know, how do you practice honesty? How do you know? Someone asked that recently. You know. uh, how do I know when, you know, if I feel like I gotta get up and take care of something in the middle of my zazen, how do I know if it's a selfish urge that I'm trying to deceive myself by or if it's real? Well, what is an emergency? If a bomb blows up next door, yeah, get up. Other than that, or if somebody is dropping next to you and you have to attend to that person, other than that, keep your butt in the cushion. I think we know. I think the question comes out of a deceiving mind. Can I get a break? Once in a while, I want a break. No breaks. Or you can get a break, actually. You can do whatever you want. You know, as a teacher, it is my responsibility to tell you that all aspects of practice are essential, imperative. But they're not mandatory. Nothing is mandatory. You can do whatever you want whatever you want, but I will tell you that it is mandatory to take a look at it. That's all. Not to do it. You're asked to take a look at it and then make a decision. If you want to come and sit down, come and sit down. If you want to come to a Zazenkai, show up. If you want to come to a Sashin, show up. You don't, don't come. But don't come for me. It happens once in a while. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I don't even know how, why, why would somebody think that it's helpful for me if, if, you, if you sit and think that you're helping my practice, because you're not. I know what I'm responsible for. I know that my practice is up to me, is in my hands. I'm reminded of that every day. And I'm reminding myself of that every day. Whether there are 50 people sitting with me or nobody sitting with me, it doesn't matter. Whether there is a Sangha or there is no Sangha, 
it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter. And then he says, I enter this, this state where the mind is not yet free of discrimination, of discriminating thinking. And I'm still able to experience lasting joy. Right? I'm still able to experience that although my mind is churning, although it's running. And the Buddha is telling us to enter the practice with an unwavering, unwavering determination, maintain one-pointed concentration, not to wait until the judgmental thinking subsides, before we give ourselves permission to experience the joy of meditation. It is there. The joy of meditation can be experienced even in the midst of judgmental thinking. This is counterintuitive because we think, well, after I'm done with this thinking, I will experience great joy. And he's saying, no. Right now, you have to experience it. Because if you're saying you're not, you cannot experience it, then you're saying that you are in the grip of judgmental thinking. Well, good luck shutting that down, stopping that. It's not going to stop. Once in a while, you will have judgmental thoughts, discriminating thoughts. But to find freedom from it in the midst of it is to find joy. To find joy outside of it is to be afraid, is to live in fear of it returning. Because it comes back. Even if you had a good week, a good month, a good year, it may and will, most likely, come back. But it's not really coming back. It's just once in a while it gets triggered. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't come from anywhere. And when it gets triggered, you just sit there and look at it. Because you know that it arises, sticks around for a while, and subsides. Like, like everything else. You know it has shelf life. You know that it will expire. So it's not an issue, it's not a problem, it's just the way it shows up now. That's all it is. Buddha then said he entered the third stage of meditation. Third stage. When mind was still and the entire body was flooded with joy, the more stable, what he's saying is that the more stable our zazen becomes, the easier it is to recognize when we drift away and when we get lost in the constant stream of thought. And when the awareness level is kept sharp, it is not so difficult to face distractions. When you find yourself entangled in the storyline, you simply return to the mountain of your zazen, to the stability of the mountain of zazen, the ground. Nothing more than that, nothing less than that. No blame, no self-deprecation, no worries. That is unflinching determination. That is coming back home. That is samadhi. A deep level of concentration. Not on something, on nothing. Concentrate on nothing. Think non-thinking. Then he goes on to describe the fourth stage where 
one goes beyond the dualism of pleasure and pain, beyond, beyond. As he says, the field of memory-making forces in the mind. No longer coming and going. No regrets, no hopes. Just this everlasting purity that never ceases to shine. Maybe these are big words for us. And it's okay. You know, I mean, the words may sound big, you know, everlasting, light, realization, consciousness, or whatever we use. But it doesn't matter, because it doesn't have to match our own experiences. It really doesn't. It has to remind us that it is up to us. So what about you? When you're utterly focused and fully present, what do you experience? And when you're not utterly focused and fully present, what do you experience? Now that's important to look at because that's what you have to work with. Not what the Buddha is saying. Only what you experience. That is the barrier. I mean, as great as these words are, they're not going to save us from it. But they can help us trust that it's there. Trust that it's there all the time, although I'm not experiencing it. Or maybe although I'm not experiencing it the way I, I think I should experience it. Maybe that's better. Because I have a mental picture of it and it doesn't match. I shouldn't be, after all these years, experiencing this anger, this sadness, this frustration. Who says that? Where does the expectation come from? And why is that a problem anyway? So we have to drop what we hear, as all senses said. Learn and forget. Listen and drop it. Listen and forget. And stop comparing. Stop comparing. Because every aspect of your realization is unique. And only you can put this realization into action. Is there anybody else that can do that? Is there anybody else that can live your life better than you, that can realize for you, that can practice for you? I think sometimes we think that there is, and we prefer to abnegate responsibility. And we have to watch for that. It's almost a, a default tendency to abnegate responsibility. Maybe live vicariously through somebody else's realization. Some people do. Queen Neng, the sixth patriarch, of Zen talked about Zazen later on, so about 1200 years later after the Buddha. And he said, in this school of teaching, sitting meditation, right, has no obstacle or obstruction. When the mind is not stirred by anything good or bad in the external environment, it is called sitting. When the mind is not stirred, when the mind is not taken by, what happens? This is sitting. 
This is referring to the za in Zazen. And then he said, inwardly seeing that immutability of one's essential nature is called meditation. Now this is referring to the Zen of Zazen. In terms of attachment to mind, the mind is originally illusory. Knowing this, there is no attachment to speak about. Speaking about fixation of purity, the essential nature is originally pure. It is due to false thought that reality is obscured. Right? It is pure as is, it's just that once we start to adhere to thinking, it gets muddled, becomes unclear. Now, without false thought, the essential nature itself is pure. Without false thoughts, the essential nature is already pure. Making an effort to fixate on purity creates illusion of purity. So the effort is not to fixate on purity. It's not to have an image of what it is and to run towards it. Because what he's saying here is that by itself will create illusion. In cultivating stillness, do not see people's good or bad qualities, rights or wrongs, faults or troubles. Then the essential nature will remain unmoved. And then he says, what is meditative concentration? <coughs> Bless you. Outwardly, detaching from appearances is meditation. Inwardly, freeing oneself from disturbances is concentration. I'll say it again. Outwardly, outwardly, detaching from appearances is meditation. So you sit and detach, but that's not to ignore or to deny. It's, it's to have an intention to not focus on it. Not focus on what's going on. Not focus on the troubles, quote-unquote. And then inwardly, freeing oneself from disturbances is concentration. So you focus on, first you sit and let go, put aside everything that is going on in your life for the time being. And then, and then we are dealing with how the mind reacts to everything that is going on in your life right now. There is that. So it's not just sitting. You sit, that's one. Secondly, you focus on the way we react to what's going on. That is Zazen. That is the whole thing. Moment by moment, breath by breath. It's exactly what we need to do. But there is doing there. It's not waiting for anything to happen. It's doing. In the midst of resistance, you practice letting go. In the midst of war and chaos, you practice peace. You see why Dogen and many other great masters said that Zazen is itself a manifestation of realization. It's already a manifestation of who you are, of realizing who you are. Whether the mind is entangled or calm, in the midst of experiencing judgmental, likes and dislikes, or discrimination, and at times of peace and tra tranquility. None of it really matters to awakening, because you're already there. 
And as long as we renew, renew the intention, and we have to renew it every day, every time we see it, we have to renew the determination to have an intention and to keep one-pointed and unflinching concentration, then the practice continues. The deepening happens. And the mind and body of themselves drop away. Of themselves drop away. And Hakuin says, what is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. It's right there. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. Then you recognize, there it is. It's always been this way. It always is this way. If we want to create unity in a very divisive world we live in, we must experience, we must experience unity in us on a personal level. And this is the challenge of practice. This is the practice. The whole practice. Just that. Just concentration, samadhi, one breath of zazen. So let's do that together. Let's renew today, right now. Renew the commitment. Renew the determination. Two zazen every day. Thank you.